HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to an on-time edition of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, coming to you every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45. I'm Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, here again with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, back from her Florida trip. Call in all of your questions, cooking-related or otherwise, to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Today's show is brought to you by... Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, which is a long time, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. That's www.hearstranch.com. They actually supplied the... um, the ribeye for the uh, Heritage Radio fundraiser that was uh, a couple months back, the one where we did the banana sustino yeah. drink. Yeah. Delicious, right? Delicious. Delicious. Good product. Anyway, uh, so yesterday was Valentine's Day. and uh, What did you do for your wife, well, Dave? Well, you know, I bought flowers because I'm lazy. But the, uh, that's not the point. The point is, is that uh, I was reminded by my... Uh, I was reminded by my uh, third grade son the horrors that used to be Valentine's Day. I was that kid uh, who, you know, when everyone was buying carnations for everyone, you know, they would buy carnations for their friend for like a dollar. Like I was the one that got the mystery admirer carnation. Like they would, they didn't think I understood that that meant that no one bought me a damn carnation, and that so they they just give one to you because no one's purchased one for you. You know what I mean? You know that kid? That kid was me, right? I mean, it's like uh, Valentine's. We didn't have that sympathy. Oh stuff. geez. Oh really? What's well, California? I just didn't get one. See, everyone thinks New York people aren't sympathetic, but in fact, you know, like they give out the sympathy carnation. We're actually good people over here in New York. For those of you that don't know us, uh, anywho. So you know, Valentine's Day was you know basically a yearly uh, living nightmare horror story for me actually up until uh you know uh 1990 uh 1991 no 1992 right when i was 20 uh was the first year i had a good valentine's and it was the day i started dating uh a actual you know crackerjack smart badass verifiable hot chick (laughs) whom i eventually married and who's my currently my wife so um Anyway, so Valentine's Day ended up being good for me, but was horrible for the first 20 years. And my son had this happen. Uh, he was, uh, you know, gave a Valentine to uh, a girl in the third grade, and, uh, which he would never do. He's not that kind of a kid. He gives it to her and completely rebuffed. No. Like, yeah, Valentine on the floor. No. I don't want this. 
complete horror. I felt felt awful, and my and my my younger son, his brother, basically, who's an equal mix of really sensitive, sweet kid and gun loving, crazy, rough and tumble boy monster, uh, goes. All right, we're either gonna kick her in the face or dip her in poop. <laughs> And then, uh, it, like, you know, no one's saying anything because they don't know what to say because it's this crazy thing to say. And then after a couple of seconds, he's like, so which is it? Kick in the face or dip in poop? Anyway, that was Valentine's Day. So, oh, uh, yeah. Hey, no name, no name. Anyway, I wasn't calling him out too bad. I guess everyone knows him, knows my son. Anyway, so uh, another thing we're announcing, we just sent out the press release for the uh, Museum of Food and Drink uh, fundraiser. Uh, and the Museum of Food... Do we have a call in? Yeah. All right, so I'll take the call first so I can spend the adequate amount of time on the Museum of Food and Drink. Hello, caller. You are on the air. Hi. I've been working a lot lately with preserved lemons and Indian lime pickles and yuzu kosho, and um, I realized recently that I didn't actually understand kind of the mechanism of what's going on with salt, curing citrus like that. It's the acidity, acidity and the salinity are too high for any sort of microbial or bacterial mechanism. So it's just got to be sort of the salt, the sort of controlled rot. But I don't really know what's going on. The whole thing gets darker and you know, the, uh, it gets thicker and the texture changes. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about what's going on there. Wow, that's actually an excellent question. I haven't really, I haven't really thought about it. I'm sure that there, there's got to be some sort of there's got to be some sort of bacterial growth, right? Uh, otherwise, it would be purely an enzymatic reaction that's causing it to happen, which I don't think it is. Because it, the thing definitely changes over time, right? So if, it cha- oh, yeah. so if it changes over time, either you're dealing with an enzymatic process or you're dealing with a uh, bacterial-slash-enzymatic process or it's probably not a yeast-based or a, any sort of fungal-based thing. I know that – you know who's an expert in this is Harold McGee. Um, I'm gonna am s- gonna speak to him relatively soon. I should ask him. You've caught me completely off guard on something that I haven't studied. I do know that if you it, it, that th- certain things do happen in them that look like they're uh, like they're bacteria based. For instance, it, you can get you can get situations when you're curing them uh, with certain kinds of lemons where you get like ropey substance forming in the in the cured lemon thing, which is probably some sort of polysaccharide. Which I would guess. Which I would guess is formed by uh, bacteria, but could be just some sort of wonky thing happening to the pectin over time. I don't know. I wish I did. I'm sorry that. Do you have a question? I might have an answer to this. Is like this is like the first time that I've been completely 100 percent stumped on what the correct answer is, right? Right, Nastasia. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't think of. I've been listening. I think I've listened to all the episodes, and I've never heard you this one before. So, uh, well, <laughs> you know, I should give you some sort of prize for a complete for a complete stump out. But what I can do. Uh, is go I'll go online and uh, I'll go into like the actual literature search, not just like the regular internet. So I'll go into like uh, I'll go into Columbia's database of uh, of uh, science literature, and I'll see if I can't find the stuff. And barring that, um, I will I will ask McGee and he will tell me what's going on. And we did have a question where I did follow up next week. So Nastasha is now being very good about making sure I follow up. So listen to next week for the answer to the question. All right. All right, and I'll uh, I'll post something to the forum to remind you. Cool, thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Oh, depressing first call. Stumped. 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 Well, that's me, big jerk. Anyway, <laughs> so um, museum. 
Museum. So the Museum of Food and Drink uh, is, you know, a museum that uh, tried to start a long time ago, like six, five, six years ago, six, I guess. And, uh, you know, Patrick Martins and I are now trying to get back off the ground again. And we're having a major fundraiser. And the fundraiser is going to be on uh, Sunday, 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 March 27th. Uh, and it's going to, you know, it's not cheap. It's what is it? It's cheap for the for the food. And well, the for what you get, it's cheap. Yes. $250. It's, it's 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 not inexpensive, but it's a bargain. It's anyway. a five-hour extravaganza. Well, we don't know. we Up to five hours extravaganza. Anyway, so we're, we're putting it on, and here's the current. And what we're doing is we're getting a bunch of chefs and bartenders to come in to Del Posto, which is a fabulous you know restaurant in uh, in uh, New York, Four Stars. Our friend Mark Ladner is the, is the chef there. Uh, and we're getting a bunch of chefs and bartenders to come in and cook things based on specific themes, right? So we're giving them a theme, and their dish is going to be inspired by by it. So here is the list in no particular order. Dave Chang, his uh, theme is American food circa 1491. So that's going to be all foods that don't have, uh, you know, all, all foods from the Americas prior to uh, the Colombian exchange. So that should be interesting. I'm thinking he's probably going to do something with acorns, which was a big Native, uh, you know, Native American uh, food stuff, but also a big Korean food stuff. So he could probably pull in like, you know, different levels of, uh, of work there. So I'm assuming he's going to do something with acorns, but who knows. Uh, Wiley Dufresne, uh, you know, from uh, WD50, my brother-in-law, I gave him, because he's well-known tech guy, I gave him caveman food. <laughs> <laughs> and he, was, he was kind of mad at me, but, you know, what are you going to do? Caveman food. Paleolithic. Uh, Mark Ladner, uh, the host chef from Del Posto, I gave him ancient Rome. Uh, and so uh, Wiley actually texted me. He was like, hey, you gave, uh, you gave Mark a softball there with the ancient Rome. But not really. Ancient Roman cuisine is ext- extraordinarily different from uh, modern Italian cuisine. It has a completely different base. Uh, like you know, spice and, and ingredient basis, you know, based more on uh, on uh, um, uh, lovage seed and uh, fish sauce and uh, you know just a whole different ingredient base than, than what's known. So it's not really a softball. Uh, that's what he's going to be doing. Nils Nils Norin, uh, uh, you know, a, kind of a, the French culinary one, right? I gave him just to be a jerk. I gave him fad diets. <laughs> See what he does with that. Fad diets. Uh, Cesare Casella, who is coming at the beginning, going to uh, give us a whole bunch of delicious salumi uh, to fit in with the fact that we knew he was going to bring salumi. We gave him shriveled meat as his category. Uh, and then, okay, Carlo from Roberta's, whose last name I've, I've never been able to pronounce, so I'm going to try say it. Say the way Mi- Well, Mirachi. But you got to say it like, Mirachi. Anyway, I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. Anyway, he's going to do New York food circa the uh, early 1900s. Or that was late 1800s. Early 1900s? 1900s. Early 1900s. Yeah. Okay. Brooks Headley, the uh, pastry chef from Del Posto, is going to be doing Hebrew food in Italy because there's a big group of, uh, of uh, people that basically had to leave Spain during the uh, Inquisitions, settled in uh, Italy and brought some very interesting uh, dessert things with them, You know, some of which uh, are kind of big in my family. And uh, Christina Tozzi, also of Momofuku Milk Bar, or from Momofuku, but a milk bar, we're giving her, this is a tough one, space food. Here's why we're giving her space food. She was like, space food? Why are you giving me space food? I was like, well, Christina Tozzi, other than being you know the fantabulous Christina Tozzi that she is little known fact she writes a lot of the HACCP plans uh, for the sous vide programs here in the city that chefs have and HACCP was uh, originally developed by large food corporations like Pillsbury uh, and for the space program the idea being that they needed uh, they needed a zero tolerance food system because if an astronaut gets the poops in the in the space it's a big problem so anyway so was, uh, HACCP was developed uh, in part for the space program and, uh, and is now used in basically in all Industries for food, and so I gave her that as a as a as a tip of the hat 
to uh, her uh, HACCP skills. Audrey Saunders from the Pegu Club will be making drinks. Thomas Waugh from Death & Co. Uh, also. Simon Ford, the uh, head, uh, I guess head bar- bartender for Pernod Ricard. Uh, Damien Bolte from Prime Meats. And Evan Clem from BR Guest Restaurants and fellow techie-related bartend dude will be doing it. Uh, all proceeds will go to the Museum of Food and Drink. Please go to http colon forward forward mofad dot that's M-O-F-A-D, like Museum of Food and Drink, dot eventbrite, spell it improperly, B-R-I-T-E dot com. That's H-T-T-P uh, forward forward mofad dot eventbrite dot com for more info. All right. That was a long plug. Yeah. Anyway, because we want you to come. It's going to be a great, great time. All right. Now, on to real questions. Uh I have a question about tempering chocolate in the microwave. Most of the instructions I've seen are very complicated, requiring a good candy thermometer and often instructions to use a microwave multiple times or add additional cold chocolate to the microwave chocolate, stirring, etc., etc. I've tried about three or four times simply putting two cups of chocolate chips into the microwave until they turn glossy and removing them, stirring them until they melt. Each time, this two-step process has worked just fine. Are the additional steps and temperature precision really necessary? Have I just been getting lucky or is something else at work? Kurt Kastorf. Well... Uh, I think you're just lucky, Kurt. Anyway, uh, but but uh, <laughs> the point is, uh, is that if you, that recipe works for you, like you you will be repeatably lucky. If you do the same thing and it's and it's working, then it should be able to repeat itself. Because here here's what's actually uh, what's actually going on and what, why the recipes are are so complicated. And by the way, you have to make sure that the chocolate is actually t- uh, tempering, right? Like so, uh, you know, you have to make sure it's actually getting a good temper. I mean, obviously anyone can just melt chocolate in the microwave. The question is, are you getting a good temper? If you are getting a good temper, and by the way, for those of you, well, you'll hear. Anyway, so chocolate has basically, the cocoa butter in it has roughly six ways of, uh, of crystallizing, right? The, the, the cocoa butter can form six different crystal structures, and those crystal structures have different, uh, different properties, right? So, uh, you know, most, uh, and those crystals have different uh, melting points, right? So what happens is, uh, badly tempered chocolate is mostly in uh, form four, which is also known as uh, beta prime. And good tempered chocolate is in form five, which is beta crystals, right? So what happens is if you uh, heat chocolate up, melt out all the crystals, and then cool it down too rapidly, which is basically any kind of cooling that you're going to do to it is too rapid, uh, it will form mostly uh, type four beta prime crystals. And what, what, what those are is they're soft, Right, because they, they have a lower melting point, so they're very soft. They have a lot. Of, uh, they don't. They're not hard. They don't have a snap, and they're dull looking. They're not glossy. All in all, they're kind of crappy. And even if even if you didn't care about all the fact that it did, you know didn't have good texture and it melted too low, if you store those for a long time, they will convert from beta prime to beta. And that sounds like it's a good thing, right, Nastasha? Because the beta is what you want. Yes. Yeah, but it's a bad thing. You know why? No. No. Well, it's because uh, all of the forms of uh, of as they get more and more hard and more and more stable, when they go from beta prime to beta, they contract. And when they contract f- from beta prime to beta, they squeeze fat out of the uh, cocoa part, and you get that white fat bloom on the top. So p- poorly. Uh, poorly uh, tempered chocolate will get fat bloom very quickly, even if you didn't care about the snap and all the rest of that stuff, right? Okay. So, and, and, and so that's why the typical old school uh, hardcore tempering technique is you melt out all of the crystals by taking it up to, you know, like a, 115 or so Fahrenheit. Sorry, Celsius heads. We're going to do this one in Fahrenheit. And then uh, you rapidly cool it down. 
to you know in the in the eighties somewhere, and then crystals start forming, and then you reheat it up to about ninety four or so to melt out all the crappy beta prime crystals. Right now, all you have in there is beta crystals. Now, when you cool it again. She'll be tempered because those beta crystals will act like little seeds that everything kind of hooks onto, right? It's all about seeding it, right? The easy way, to, and that's if you're starting from all you have, you're on a desert island, you have a pot, a thermometer, and a bunch of untempered chocolate, right? That's how you would do it. Most of the time, what we do is we just melt the chocolate, right? We take it up, melt it, bring it down into the range where uh, beta crystals want to form in the 90s, right? And then stir in chopped up tempered chocolate that already have the good seeds in them, the good crystal form and then all of a sudden all of the chocolate as it cools will form those nice stable uh, beta crystals right and, but you need at least um, you know about you know one to three percent of uh, beta crystals mixed all throughout it so you're stirring it right to cause it to happen to uh, to seed it to seed it properly now when you're doing it in the nuke right you're starting with uh, hopefully with tempered chocolate. If you start with tempered chocolate, right, and you nuke it so it's like you say just glossy on the outside, and then you stir it. So long as the temperature of that thing is in the beta zone, right, in the like 90s, and not a low temperature where you're going to be forming uh, bad beta prime crystals, right. So as long as as soon as that last piece of chocolate melts, you're still in that like you know 90, 90, 92, 93, 94 Fahrenheit range in there, 95 in that zone. Right then, you will uh, seed properly with uh, beta crystals, and it'll work. But the reason they have it like taking it out all the time and stirring it, and then sometimes throwing in seed chocolate, is because they're assuming that you're going to overheat the mass of chocolate, so that when it's all melted, it's not going to be in the right temperature range. So yes, you got lucky, but maybe you'll get repeatably lucky. If I were you, I would save some seed chocolate to stir in after it's all melted, just in case. And you can take the temperature when it's done, and that should give you the answer. So a long-winded, but I mean, chocolate tempering is an interesting uh, subject. The good reference book to get on chocolate that's small is uh, the Science of Chocolate by Stephen T. Beckett. It's expensive but small and fairly easy to read. Uh, I think probably a smaller investment and faster to read than uh, the other book that people use now, Chocolate Science and Technology by Emmanuel Afoakwa. Right, and I don't know that anyone uses the old chocolate reference. This is one I started using back in the day, which is Minifee. Minifee's big old chocolate book. Right, and with that, we will go to our first commercial break. Call in all your questions to 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. Cooking issues. You want to do it again? Yeah, let's go on back. Gotta take you high. Yeah. Uh. Uh. Brother. Yeah. Now I want everybody. Let's blow up my two courses. And then I want to wave in. Let's go and do that with this now. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. I'm going to get that fella with the little horn over there. See that change horn on me. Get that Brad, can you take us higher? Yeah. Take us higher.
Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And although that's the longest we've played that song during the intermission, we still have not made it to Funky D. He's going to make it to Funky D in a little while, but we'd be here all day if we waited for James to go down to Funky D, although it is well worth the wait. I encourage you all to go out and do it to death, as James, I guess, actually did since he's now dead. Anyway, uh, right? Dumb. Really dumb. I'm a dumb man. What do you want out of me? Okay. Um... Jason writes in from England, and I think he was listening actually to two weeks ago, saying that uh, he was listening to me answer the question about cookie texture using hydrocolloids, and he says more conventionally, you just use high-gluten high uh, flour, uh, and he, he won't get a bready, uh, bready cookie. He'll just uh, limit the spread, which uh, you know, I actually got confirmed and said last week from Christina Tozzi, but here's uh, you know, further confirmation that what you want to do to get your cookie to not spread so much is use a high-gluten flour. Jason adds a secondary uh, thing, which is also... Uh, let the uh, let the cookie rest in the fridge uh, for uh, 24 hours. I guess that will, I guess, develop the the. I don't know. Well, the cold will limit the spread, as we said, but also maybe developing some of the some of the flour more. I don't know. But anyway, uh, thank you, Jason, for for that tip. Uh, now we had a question, and it sent me off on like a, a on a bunch of research. So you're gonna have to hear another one of my long-winded nonsense things. Uh, but Chris Wait, Anderson before writes in. Before you get to your long-winded, you what? Have a call. Oh, we have a caller. Mm-hmm. All right, caller, you are on the air. Hey, how are you doing, David? Doing all right. See if we get a double stump this week. What do you got? <laughs> my name is Matt. I'm actually calling from Chicago. Hey, Chicago. Hey, Matt from Chicago. Uh, actually, I used to work in New York with Wiley and Mark and all those guys. So oh, nice. I know all those guys. Um, you're not, you're not at uh, you're not at uh, you're not out there with uh, Mike Sheeran, are you? Where are you cooking out in Chicago? No, no I'm actually a sous chef at a steakhouse, but uh, that just opened. It's crazy busy, but it's a whole different story. Yeah. Um, my question is, um, I'm really interested in the uh, nitrous infusion using right. the uh, ISI cream whipper. Right. And um, I was wondering if you tried it with any viscous liquids, like say honey, or some kind of a scented syrup. All right, I haven't, but if I if, okay, so here's the thing, right? Honey has uh, honey is just extremely thick, right? Mm-hmm. So if I was going to do it, I'm I, it would, I'm assuming it would work, but I think you'd want to keep the whole thing like f- war- like warmer than we normally keep it, right? So gotcha. I would I, I would put the whole ISI in or EC, which is it that they like EC. now? EC, jeez. Anyway, I would put yeah, the, I would put, I would put the, uh, no 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 I do it all. The, it's not you, it's me. I can't because in in here it was one and in Europe it was the other, and they're trying to make it both the same now, but like no one can keep it straight. And when I say no one, me, no one else seems to have a problem. Anyway, EC. <laughs> um, so I would put the whole thing into a uh, into a, a warm bain marie for a while, and the reason is you just need it to be uh, thin enough to, to get accurate you know to get punched into the pores of your product right uh-huh. so if you, if it's if it's, you get it nice and liquidy by warming it then I think it should uh, work you know but you have to okay. keep, you have to keep it liquid like warm during the whole process down to the time when you're venting it so that it can also bubble back out again I, I've never okay. tested it but I, I have uh, I have high hopes that it will work let me put it that way Outstanding. Sounds right. cool. But give it a shot and then let us know how it works. All right, I will. And I got another thing on the ouzo effect. Um, right. I was listening to the old shows on the way into work the other day, and I was like, I honestly, I didn't believe that you could cloudy the water. I used to drink pastises a lot, and I didn't think that the water, that the liquor would get cloudy just by dilution. 
And so I had to try it. And the, the interesting thing is, is that it does obviously get cloudy by dilution, but if you put it in the microwave for less than 10 seconds, the cloudiness goes away. And then by adding more ice cubes to it, the cloudiness comes back. So I tried it with, with boiling hot water. I tried it with water, tea water. And it still gets, the cloudiness still comes in from dilution, but it goes away much faster with heat. Huh. So, so it's an interesting, interesting thing. Yeah, so, huh, so when you're heating, that actually makes sense to me, right? So what's happening is you're adding water, and uh, as you add water, you reach a point at any given temperature where the oil is no longer soluble in that percentage of ethanol, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, right. It, it forms instantly forms little uh, micro uh, you know, droplets of oil, and that's what makes it look cloudy. If you let it sit at that temperature for a long time, uh, sometimes depending – I don't know with pastis, but with some of the stuff that I make uh, – that, that cloudiness, the oil will actually float to the top, and then it won't be cloudy anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you're saying is is you heat it, and when you heat it, you're re-increasing the solubility of the oil into the remaining ethanol fraction, right? Because Pres- presumably you're not boiling. If you boiled it, you'd probably make the problem worse. But by heating right. it, you're increasing the solubility uh, of the product and causing it to go clear again. And then when you drop the temperature again by adding ice – you're doing two things. One, you're watering it down more, which is going to increase the, uh, the dropout, and you're also uh, decreasing the temperature, which increases the dropout. That makes sense, but that's interesting, but I've never experimented with it before. Yeah, yeah. It was just a weird thing. I thought I had to try it out. Yeah, huh. <laughs> so I'd let you know. All right, cool. Thanks right, a lot. Well, thanks, man, and I'll let you know how the honey goes, okay? Very good. Thanks so much. You have another call. Sure. Take it easy. Oh, we have another caller. Caller, you were on the air. Hi, Dave. I was uh, messing around with some Nepalese the other day, and I cut them into cubes, and I was uh, just soaking them in some water, and I noticed this gelatinous substance was forming, and I guess that's the the, uh, the substance that the cacti use to, like, uh, retain moisture in the desert, right? Uh, right. It's like, well, the hydrocolloids similar to, like, what aloe vera has. Right. Okay. So is it like a mucilage, like okra, or like filet, or is that a completely different, like, class? I mean, I, you know, that's interesting. I haven't researched whether or not it can be used as a thickener. It is sure is slimy. Interestingly enough, on Sunday, yeah. I was cooking uh, nopales, and you know how, I mean, uh, when, I, when I cook them, I always, you know, I, I try to get the... Um, I try to get the spines off with the minimum of damage because right. I know they're going to ooze out a lot, you know. And so I usually grill them first and then let them cool down a bit before I slice them so they don't get too slimy on me. But I've never tried to actively, uh, actively extract the slime. So did did you then did you decant the slime off that was in the in the water and then try to use it for something or no? I did not, but uh, I probably will try it in the future. But I, the first thing I thought of was like okra and other, you know, other thickeners. And I wonder how it would uh, compare. And if I mean, you I, any I'm sure it's probably. Look, I mean, all different hydrocolloids have different um, actions, and we're used to thinking of hydrocolloids as being these things that come in powdered form. But in reality, yeah. hydrocolloids are all, uh, not all, most, uh, are, fr- are just like what you say. They come from natural sources, and they've been discovered in natural ways, like most of the seaweed. Uh, seaweed, Like, you know, you can extract carrageenan from uh, Irish moss by boiling it, right? Or you can uh, – and so okra basically – 
is uh, has this kind of uh, snotty, slimy stuff that is actually a natural hydrocolloid, just not one that's used uh, industrially, so it doesn't get lumped in. But m- you know, many products have um, you know these, these things. And so there's a chef from Spain, I forget who it was, who did it, but you know, made a made a lot of demos basically using the natural hydrocolloids in aloe vera. Right. Although I guess if you if you do that that wrong, it can give you the poops because of the latex. But uh, but the um, uh, so to, you know to answer your question, I, I don't know I don't know of any commercially uh, used uh, cactus based thickening things. But you know it, it is it, it is some polysaccharide, right? So it is some hydrocolloid. And then the question is, what are its uh, what are its properties? It doesn't seem like it's a gelling hydrocolloid, right? It seems more like a thickener, if you, if you ask exactly. me. But the question is, like, will it thicken without making too sl- making things too slimy? It's a fairly slimy stuff, you know what I mean? It's it's more on the order, like you say, of okra. And so when you over thicken with okra as opposed to filet, like like those those uh, those things can take on a bit of a slippery nature, right? Which I actually kind of like for those dishes, but some people don't. You know what I mean? Like some people don't, mean. some people don't get down with the okra. I I happen to think that. Okra is one of God's gifts to you know humanity. I love okra, but um, a lot of people a lot of people do not. I don't know why. Fried okra is one of the great things in the world. Anyway, um, uh, so I think again uh, I have noticed this effect, um, but I haven't seen whether there's any. You know what I'll do again? Uh, I'm not going to count this as a complete stump, by the way, because I I do know what you're talking about. Uh, but what I'll do is I'll try and see whether anyone has characterized what the uh, polysaccharides are in the nopalis. And by the way, for those of you who don't know what the hell we're talking about, I realize nopalis are like uh, prickly pear cactus leaves. You can buy them in uh, Latin stores. Be careful because uh, some of them are relatively innocuous, but some of them, the spines can be pretty nasty and can get in your fingers when you're working with them. Scrape the uh, scrape off the uh, spines with uh, with a knife. I cut off usually the very uh, tip end, which is the only part I cut off because it's hard to scrape that thing accurately. Brush with oil, salt, pepper, grill. Uh, enjoy it because they're delicious. They're also kind of sour. They're s- slimy and kind of tart and kind of delicious. Don't you think so? I think so. I agree. Yeah. Anyway, so I'll, I'll try and see whether anyone has characterized what the polysaccharide is in there. And meanwhile, you see whether you can thicken up a uh, stew with them and uh, give us a holler back. All right. Thanks, Dave. All right. Very good. Thank you. Let's take a break. All right, we will take our – Nastasha's telling me we will take our second commercial break, even though that was a short segment because I took the long one to last. Anyway, 718 – what is it? 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, Cooking Issues. I 
That's the balls. Goes down to D. Everyone else goes up. James goes down. Back here, cooking issues, calling your questions too. 718 497 2128. That's 718 497 2128. All right, Chris Anderson writes in. He says, I've tried making authentic French macaroons a few times. Macaron. A few times. Uh, and while they taste great, I don't seem to be able to achieve the polished flat look of uh, La, Durée, La Durée, which is, you know, the famous uh, French macaroon shop in Paris. Mine tend to crack and collapse as they are baking. Would it help to use an Italian meringue instead of a French? Could the meringue be too stiff? Is the oven temperature too high at 180 Celsius? Are there any modern ingredients that I could add to improve the result? I'd really appreciate your uh, advice. So, first of all, when we're talking about these, these uh, you know, macaroon, macaron, whatever you want to call them, uh, what we're referring to here, the La Durée style, is basically a sandwich style with uh, either a ganache or a jelly filling in between two soft uh, almond and egg white-based delicious things. They come in various colors, and they, like fried okra, are one of God's great creations. Uh, and I love them. So, okay, so here's the thing. I have a lot of things to say on this subject, right? But I will, I will tell you that, that first and foremost, I just walked up to one of our pastry chefs today and was like, all right, you know, this guy is having this problem. What do you think? Here's what, here's what uh, Chef Jurgen, one of our lead pastry instructors, said. One, what kind of sugar are you using? If you're using a coarse sugar to make your uh, meringue or to fold in with the sugar with the almonds, try going to a uh, – try going to a um, – my brain's gone. A finer grade of sugar. He also said that if your if your things are cracking and collapsing, perhaps you aren't deflating your uh, perhaps you aren't deflating your uh, your your egg whites enough before they go in. So there's too much air left in the mix, and they're it's puffing up too much and cracking and collapsing. I thought that was really interesting because most of the time when you try to do a recipe with an egg white, you you want to make sure not to deflate it. And he's saying, well, maybe you're not deflating it enough. I thought that was very interesting. Um, the other thing is uh, I'm not sure I didn't do the, the conversion uh, from uh, Celsius to Fahrenheit, but if your oven is too hot, it can puff up too fast and collapse. Also, remember most recipes tell you to leave the door ajar when you're cooking uh, these things because I guess they want the uh, steam to escape. So th- those are all those are all things things to look at. Uh, but uh, in the course of researching your uh, problem, uh, I came uh, across these things, which you may or may not fi- find interesting. One is just a book that I think. Everyone should own, but nobody does. It's almost completely unavailable. It's called Perfect Bakery and Confectionery by the Richemont Craft School. And Nastasha's going to be gloating because I'm uh, you know, pumping a Swiss group, and she's like mm. she's queen Switzerland. But uh, this craft school in, in Switzerland puts out uh, this series of books. But this one, Perfect Bakery and Confectionery, is unavailable except through them. And it's like $99. It really makes me angry. And uh, I can't find it on BookFind or anything. But it's one of the great pastry books because what it does is it has pictures. Pictures side by side of, hey, what happens when the flour is too fine, too coarse, just right? And it'll show you a picture of all the bakery stuff. So they have a, like a four-page section on macaroons, but they're unfortunately they're not the kind you're talking about. They're the old-school Italian, um, you know, denser, not sandwich-based uh, cookies. All right. 
uh, secondly, um, I will go through a, 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 a short history on, on the macaroons. The macaroon, obviously, originally an Italian product uh, and apparently derived from the same word as, uh, as a macaroni because it's ground. It's basically any form of kind of ground almond paste and sugar uh, that is then has egg whites added to it, right? The French ones uh, you know, are, are beaten egg white, but they don't have to be beaten. They can just be mixed in for a denser, denser macaroon. That was the original one uh, taken, to, uh, taken to France with the Medici's when they went over, right? The coconuts stuff is a later uh, is a later addition where uh, almond was in whole or in part substituted with uh, shredded coconut uh, and so that you know that's how the coconut macaroon so most Americans you ask them about a macaroon and they're thinking about a coconut product but that was actually derived from the the almond based one now the mac- the macaron that we're talking about the sandwich everyone credits Everyone credits, uh, you know, uh, the uh, this guy at La Durée in the early part of the 20th century with uh, inventing it, right? And the guy's name I forget what it is. I have it here, Pierre uh, Desfontaines, right? Uh, it was the grandson of the original La Durée, right? He they say he invented this idea of of making a double decker macaroon, uh, uh, putting ganache in uh, in the middle. And uh, I don't think that's. I mean, that's what everyone says. That's what everyone on the internet says. Uh, but I was researching this and I went to. One of the great, one of my favorite, other favorite pastry books, which uh, you can actually get for free on the internets because it's old. Uh, it was written in 1904, and it's called uh, Modern Baker, Confectioner, and Caterer, printed in 1907, rather, by John Kirkland. It's a four-volume set, and you can actually get them. It was published in England, and you can still get it cheap, and these are a fantastic fantastic set of books state of the art baking from 1907 and actually I think they were kept revising it up till 1930 and copies are still cheap it's four volumes and you can get each one for like you know 13 bucks if you're in England but it's shipped over here it's like 20 bucks because that no one in the US has them it's an English only thing which is where I bought my copy um but uh, I was researching macaroons then, and prior to when Lauderay was supposed to have invented it, right? They had uh, they had something where b- basically uh, they would always sandwich the macaroons together to form a nice appearance, and that's why if you read recipes, and this is only for macaroon heads out there, they'll tell you to put it on parchment on a, uh, and when you pull it off the baking sheet, to put some water between the parchment and the thing to make the macaroons come off easier. In fact, they were on wafer paper before and put on water, which would dissolve the wafer paper, and you could pull it off, and the bottom will be tacky and you could stick the two macaroons together to make a macaroon on macaroon sandwich. Now one of the recommendations that this book makes I think is very interesting is if you uh, have problems sticking these two things together, right, then because maybe they're not wet enough or they're just not sticking, then you can take some uh, some apricot jelly they recommend and wipe it between forming what up a standard La Durée style macaroon. So maybe this dude at La Durée humped up a bunch of macaroons one day and was like these things aren't sticking together and then put a ganache instead of a jelly in between them all and sold that as like you know the, the cool thing because they definitely popularized them you know what I'm saying yeah. anyway so those are my thoughts on macaroons and you should definitely go out and uh, look on the internet for uh, Kirkland's uh, Modern Baker and Confectionery or buy a hard copy like I have has a really good section on molding and cornstarch and has a lot of I me mean, even though it's very old has a lot of um, a lot of if this goes wrong do this if that goes wrong do this etc 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 really 
uh, great uh, set of books. And they also have an interesting thing to say about macaroons. If you're making macaroons in the U.S. and old school, they're talking about old school Italian macaroons here, right? Uh, if is it they're very influenced by the amount of oil in the almond. So if you're making it from scratch with California almond, you're going to get a very different result from if you're making a macaroon with uh, like a European or Marcone or something like that. It has very high fat content. So a lot of the California almonds we get have a lower fat content. And what they're saying is, is if your almonds don't flow well enough, if they're too pinched up, you're probably using an almond uh, with not enough fat. And if they flow too freely, maybe you're using one with too much fat. They were talking about uh, buying almond paste that were adulterated, either with non-fat products or with or with extra fat. But it's something that I never thought about. I thought it was v- uh, very, very uh, interesting. Anyway, uh, so uh, so that's that for the the macaroon. I love macaroons. Don't you love macaroons? I would like one right now. I would like one right now as well. Anyway, okay. So uh, now on to the last question. I have to, excuse me. I have to reach over and get the paper. We are a paper-based show today instead of an iPad-based show today, which is very interesting. Uh, okay. Joe Blute, who is a, uh, at Dallas – where is he? Dallas College, right? I don't know the first page of it. Dallas? Dallas. Dallas? Right, yeah. Dallas. Dallas? Yes, sure. Dallas. Anyway, uh, he writes in and says some uh, very kind words uh, about about us. And uh, he said uh, he had a couple couple questions, right? So one, he was he, he's by the way thinking of building his own uh, rotary evaporator, and uh, he's a chem- oh, chemistry major at the University of Dallas. He's trying to he's thinking about building his own rotary evaporator. So am I, so am I, Joe. But unfortunately, I haven't had the time to do it. Hopefully, sometime very soon, I will have the opportunity to do that. More on that in a couple minutes. Um, uh, but he also uh, is looking. For for a budget centrifuge, and I think we posted on that a couple times, trying to find a budget centrifuge. Don't go too budget, right? Make sure that the centrifuge is safe. That's uh, that's what I'm gonna what I'm gonna say. Um, but he has a question that uh, I want to get to, and he says, uh, uh, "I really love uh, the multifaceted aspect of the culinary arts that you get to deal with, and what you do is something I am interested in. Uh, the mixture of organic surfactant and kinetic chemistry is fascinating. How do you come to have such a great job, and what do you recommend I do to move towards such a position?" Okay, here's what I say. Um, one, you know, f- food science is we, – we don't do food science, right? We use science to make food, which is kind of a fundamental difference. Like I don't really – I don't have like a big uh, – you know, uh, I can't do quantitative chemistry. I can't do anything like that. All the stuff we do, there's no real analytical work. It's all using principles and ideas with either standard uh, kitchen cooking ware or things that we've repurposed as standard kitchen cooking ware. So when I'm using a centrifuge, I'm not using a centrifuge to do uh, – to analyze uh, something. I'm using it to try and create a delicious product, right? When I use a rotary evaporator, I mean although I am purifying and distilling, I'm not doing it for the same reasons that a chemist does. It's not part of an analytical uh, study, right, or even a production uh, of a, like a drug or something like that. So – what I do is very specialized, and it's and, and we read a lot of science, and I love science, and I do, and you know, I, I love it. But what we, what I'm actually doing day to day is uh, cooking, and so we're, you know, we're what you have to do to kind of get to do the kind of stuff that I get to do is cook a lot, you know, and so. Um, and not just with science and, 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 and tech stuff, just do a lot of cooking. You need to have a lot of cooking under under your belt. You need to love cooking. You need to love tasting. You need to taste everyone else's uh, stuff. You need to be 
uh, curious about um, all different ingredients and uh, what they do and, and how they interact. You know, I think McGee said it best when he when he you know he wrote a book called The Curious Cook, and that's the name of his uh, that's the name of his second book. Sadly, out of print. Hopefully, he brings it back into print. It's a very personal book. Uh, and it basically just shows that you know what you need to be McGee is to well what you need to be McGee is to be like a real sweetheart and also smart uh, you know very smart and also read a lot but be very curious and be very observant about food and that's you know what you really what you really need to do the second part of it is you have to make friends in the food world that's the sad truth you know you could sit around and be you know know a lot. Uh, and do a lot, and if you don't have uh, friends, it's hard to network and um, get an actual job where someone will pay you. Uh, and so, luckily nowadays, it's a lot easier with the internet to get to know people and to become more known in these kinds of subjects because the subject matter people. It's a very s- small group who you know care about uh, technology cooking, but it's uh, you know you can kind of get in touch with them more than you used to. But of course, the bar is higher than it was you know let's say six uh, six years ago when I started. Um, you know, doing this or five years ago when I started working at the French Culinary, there were fewer people who were known for doing it, and the the bar to entry was lower. Um, so anyway, that's what I recommend: cook a lot, uh, get to know some people in the food world, uh, and you know, eat a lot and cook a lot. That's basically the answer. And while we get to it, uh, he says, "Thank you for putting your experimentation online. It's been a pleasure reading about them, and hopefully, I can try some of them eventually." Uh, again, thank you for the compliment, and I will say uh, we apologize. Uh, yet again, for the lack of posting we've had recently. Uh, recently. We've been uh, very busy, very, very, very busy, and uh, working on some new ventures. So um, I am now officially March 1st going to basically be starting my own consulting company, uh, which is we've been working on, which is why we haven't been, been posting so much. I'm still going to be the director of culinary technology at the French Culinary Institute. I'm still going to be teaching classes, and I'm still going to be uh, maintaining uh, cooking issues as the French Culinary Institute's uh, cooking blog. Uh, and you'll be happy to note people who bother me about not posting that I will be contractually obliged to write one post a week or at least for a month. Uh, but uh, it allows us to do some other fun stuff like we can take on outside people if they want to work, do stuff for cooking issues. So if there's someone out there who is uh, – doesn't mind getting beaten down because we'll beat you down, doesn't mind uh, – you know, who's a complete perfectionist uh, when it comes to like thinking about things, right? Who, who You know what I mean, right, Nastasha? I mean I'm, I'm a pain in the butt. You are a pain in the butt. Yeah, but you know, if you like the style, right, and if you, and if you, if you think the way that, that we think, uh, you know, then maybe – you know, if if it doesn't bother you spending you know a, a zillion years worried about what what's going on inside of a corn kernel during nixtamalization, well, you know maybe maybe and you want to do this for little to no remuneration, maybe you too could work with cooking issues. And that's this week's cooking issues. Uh, we hope to hear from you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.